Hey, welcome to Connecticut Voice Podcast, where we amplify the extraordinary voices of people on the LGBTQIA spectrum. I'm Kyone Wolf. I've been a Connecticut resident all my life, and I'm a homeowner in Hartford. I host a storytelling show at the Mark Twain House, an advice show at CT Improv's Underground Comedy Theater. I play the trash can in the Hartford Hot Several Brass Band. I'm the founder and chairwoman of Pedal to the Metal, a yearly pre-Eversource Hartford Marathon charity bike ride. I'm a certified judge with the International Chili Society, and I'm a 38-year-old cis female queer woman who's been out of the closet since 1996. Now, back in those days, I was a teenager, and coming out meant putting rainbow flags and stickers everywhere. My my freedom rings were attached to me like wedding rings. I shaved my head, I rocked some Doc Martens, I learned to play the guitar and sang original songs and Ani DeFranco covers, naturally, about the frustration and the joys of all this love I was navigating. I saw absolutely everything through the lens of my sexuality, especially after keeping it secret for so long. But as I got older, I felt kind of frustrated. Like I didn't want my sexuality to be my defining feature. I didn't want to be Kyone the lesbian. I wanted to be Kyone the nice person who also happens to be a lesbian. And did lesbian even totally perfectly match what I felt? I put away the freedom rings and archived those old songs I sang and traded the Doc Martens for... That's not true. The Doc Martens are awesome, so I kept those. But in the last couple years, I've started wrapping my head around the importance, the urgent necessity of being out, of talking about it, of listening to what other people have been through and are still going through. That's how things change, right? Our country's come a long way. I I never in a million years thought I'd be able to get married. And here I am in 2019 engaged. But it hasn't come a long way everywhere or in every way. I present as an ambiguously sexually oriented white cis female, which means I have a lot less to fear than anyone who doesn't fit into a box that makes powerful people feel safe. We only make progress if we who can be out are out, and if we talk about it, if we ask really hard questions, and if we listen. This podcast is possible because the good folks at Seasons Magazine realized that they had a pretty big platform that they could create with and for folks on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. They started Connecticut Voice Magazine, they hired people on the spectrum to work on it and advise on it, and they asked me to launch this Connecticut Voice podcast. Clearly, they have fantastic taste, and so do you. So thanks for being here. I hope you find little gems in these episodes that make you think, that you talk about over dinner, that make you want to engage with the world a little differently. I hope you share this with your friends and with people who may need to be shown a bigger picture of the world beyond rainbow flags. Now, on this podcast, you're definitely going to hear from people talking about life on this spectrum, what they've struggled with and what they've achieved and what they're looking forward to. But along the lines of what I was saying before, your sexuality really isn't every little thing about you. So you're going to hear from people who wrote a book, who made a movie, who work at an arts organization, who expanded their law firm, who also happen to be on this spectrum. So you'll get a little bit of everything. On that note, let's do this. Episode one. Now we're going to finish this inaugural episode with a short chat with Martin Geitzt, the president and CEO of Simsbury Bank, about diversity in the workplace. But I want to get started with my conversation with Catherine Tierney. She's the medical director of Middlesex Health's Transgender Medicine Program in Middletown, Connecticut. Now, I had like a thousand questions for her, but this podcast can only be so long. So here are some of my favorite parts from our conversation from October of 2018. And I started off by asking her how she describes what she does. 
So anytime anybody asks me sort of what I do or what we do as a, a health system is that first and foremost, we're cheerleaders. I see patients, but it's their life that needs to be either changed or helped or treated in some way. And so my role is really to help people sort of see what their options are health-wise, make sure that they understand what the risks are, and then they have to make those decisions for themselves. So it's my job to help them gain confidence and to understand their medical treatment and then to make the choices that will be best for them, and then to reassess, come back, make another decision if we need to, and continue in that vein. The second thing that I and, and our health system do is that we're clinical experts. We're meant to know as much as there is to know about transgender health because we don't have a ton of research, we don't have a ton of guidelines. We're working a lot on the clinical information and the experience that we had over we've had over these years to make good decisions, as much evidence-based decision making as we can do, but also to take what we know and extrapolate that out to help people in the way that we can. How do people find out that you exist? How do they know to come to you? And where do they begin? And then where do they typically go? So, you know, as a health system, there are lots of ways to come in to the to the system itself. So some people might present in the emergency room or in primary care or to the surgeons, or they might present to me first and then start using those other services as well. And honestly, the biggest thing is word of mouth. You know, I've been doing this care for almost 15 years now in Connecticut, so it's a small state, everybody knows everybody. And really the use of Facebook and the internet has really increased the amount that trans people are able to communicate safely because 10 or 15 years ago, that really wasn't possible. People couldn't you know, meet other trans people or find providers they knew were safe because there was no way to guarantee that you weren't going to be abused or hurt or physically assaulted when you met that person. So word of mouth is the biggest piece. The second is therapists in Connecticut who specialize in gender, because if somebody's going through this, they frequently show up with a therapist to figure out why they're so uncomfortable and what they can do about it. And so um, in Connecticut, we're very lucky to have many, many therapists who specialize in gender identity issues. And um, when they feel like the person or the person feels like they're at a point where hormone therapy makes sense, the therapist will send them to me as a referral to start the process of talking about the hormonal piece of that. The process of gender transition is so multifactorial from the cultural and the family and the medical and the surgical and the, the psychosocial. There's so much that goes into that, that there's not just one part of it. I end up being, you know, the lightning rod for a lot of it because it's the first medical piece and that's the part that gets them sort of into that medical system. But there's so much more that goes on with that, which is why I'm lucky to be at a hospital and a health system that can do all of those pieces of that care so that we are making sure that we're taking care of the whole person and not just handing them hormones and saying, good luck. We're giving them the support. We're giving them the psych care. We're giving the emergency care. We're doing surgery. We're making sure that they're treated fairly when they come in the hospital so that we make sure that we're taking care of the whole person and their family. It's clear that there's a lot of different ways that people get from point A to B to C, et cetera. How do you know when you're done with a patient? Are you ever done with a patient? So I don't think there's any such thing as a uh, complete transition. A lot of people ask me, what's a complete transition or have they completed their transition? And I don't, I sort of see the world in a more circular way than that. And part of it is that if all of us are gender nonconforming, then even a trans person could be gender nonconforming, right? You could present as male 100% of the time, wear a dress on Saturday night, and now you're gender nonconforming. So if you think about gender in a more sort of 
general term, you have to, you can look at the different pieces of the transition. So there's the emotional part is the biggest part. You know, there's definitely hormonal effects that are physical and obvious, but there's a, a lot more going on underneath the surface that makes people feel better about who they are. And sometimes that means they're perfectly comfortable continuing to present exactly as they walked into my office the very first time. They just have a little bit of hormone on board to make them feel like themselves. And I think that idea of being comfortable in your own skin is really, really important because this idea that there has to be, if you're going to be a trans guy, that you have to have a beard and be six foot two is sort of going back to that original you know, two boxes of male and female that we're trying to get away from in the first place. And so that idea that there's a point A to point B is sort of not, I try to get that out of the vernacular. And I, it's almost more challenging with, with people who are transitioning than it is with non-transitioning people. Because when you're transitioning, there's often this sense that you have to get to a certain point in order to be accepted as the other gender. Some people, not everybody's like that, but for a lot of people, they feel like if they can't do, you know, X, Y, and Z, if they can't grow a beard or they can't get their voice to deepen, then they're not actually a boy. And so it's hard for all of my patients, regardless of what diagnosis I'm seeing them for, to get them comfortable in their skin, because I think that's what we struggle with in our humanity is just being comfortable as who we are and not necessarily as how other people expect us to be. So I'm frequently not done with patients for a long time, partly because the first year is a lot of hormone titration. The second year is, is discussing surgery a lot of times, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, surgeries become an option. There's multiple surgeries that are open to people. So that becomes, you know, that we have to navigate that part of it. And then part of it is that I truly believe that most of these patients should go back to primary care for ongoing management because after a while, it's not really specialty anymore, right? My, my job as a specialist is to do the the hardest of the cases, the people that aren't straightforward. And in our current healthcare situation, everyone who's trans is more complicated than primary care can handle because there's not enough education in nursing and medical schools. So eventually I would, you know, 20 years from now or at the end of my career, I fully expect that the hardest cases or the most complicated cases will be mine long-term, but the less complicated cases will transition with hormones, get stable, and then go back to primary care. So part of my, my work is to try and educate other providers so that they can do the work as well, because it's really, it's straightforward. It's what we do with non-transgender patients, it's all the same medications. We don't have any special medications for transgender patients. They're the ones we know and know what to do with. We're just using them for a different reason. Considering the Trump administration and its views on the trans community, are you worried? How much power do you think this administration may have over the work you're doing on a one-to-one -one basis? What the administration has decided to do is basically make people afraid. And I think that's not something we can take lightly. I think I've already started getting phone calls, not necessarily about that in particular, but I think people start getting nervous because if you start saying, we're going to tell you you're not yourself again, and we're going to take away your medical care, people start to get really nervous because we've come from this place in the last couple of years of a lot of hope we've had, especially in Connecticut. We are so lucky here because we have amazing advocates and we have amazing politicians, honestly, who have done the work here to make sure that insurance coverage is mandated for trans people, that hormone therapy and surgery are mandated coverages, that you can change your name and your, and your gender and change your birth certificate here, which is far and above many other states. And that 
that is stuff they, the Trump administration just can't take away. As a state, I think we're going to be okay. There are always going to be people who don't believe in this or who don't want to think about this or who want to bring other people down. But, you know, in the same way that we fought for gay marriage, it's sort of like, I'm not asking you to be transgender. I'm just asking you not to hurt people who are transgender. So, you know, I think it is absolutely a scary time. It is unfortunate because I feel like we finally have come to a place in the world where we're starting to make progress, where people are truly being able to be themselves and that improves their rates of poverty. It improves their rates of homelessness. It improves access to health care. I mean, it's being transgender or covering transgender services is not an expensive thing. It's actually fairly cheap. It just is such a lightning rod for people in terms of their own gender identity. It sets off all kinds of questions about that. And really, it's about having good boundaries, right? My gender identity doesn't really affect your gender identity at all, and it shouldn't. Um, And so, yes, I think that the administration's moves are scary and unfortunate, and it brings me back to a time, you know, as a gay woman, feeling like people are putting signs on their lawns against me. But if nothing else, it's a time to galvanize us and motivate us and get us all together so that we're all still moving in the same direction. But I really do think as a state, Connecticut is far and above where other places are, and we are at least starting ahead in the race. And even if they try to put weights on our ankles while we're running, we're still going to try to run. You were talking about how we're doing as a state. Are there any other states that are killing it like we are or doing even better than we are? Well, first, it's not a competition, but there's <laughs> there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pieces to this, right? We're not there's not just one sweeping everybody's happy with transgender in every state. So each place has their own set of laws that are going through or mandates that are going through. And places like New York now has the option to put um, non-binary on the on their license rather than just male or female. So they're beating us if it were a competition <laughs> in that regard. Massachusetts is doing well with insurance coverage and recognizing genders. Places like Virginia, not so much. There, you know, there are some battleground states where, especially trans youth, are really fighting for their lives. So, when you ask about the Trump administration, it's really about how do we allow human beings to define themselves? And of course, we go to bathrooms, right? I'm not sure why bathrooms have to be the place where we're going to fight this war, but it is. And in Virginia, a couple of weeks ago, a middle school was doing a lockdown drill. Now, lockdown drills are common now. My 9- and 11-year-old know exactly what what to do in a lockdown drill. And in this particular school, what needs to happen is each each person goes into their respective locker room. So all the boys go into the boy locker room and the girls go into the girls' locker room. And there was a trans kid, and that person was denied access to both bathrooms. So that's the kind of thing that we really need to think about when we're talking about how states are doing or how we're protecting children. At the end of the day, regardless of what genitalia we have and what we call ourselves and how we dress and what we do with our hair, we are still human beings and we can't be left out of the locker room. Back to the really sexy conversation, insurance. You talked about this earlier, uh, about uh, Connecticut doing a good job about making sure that this is covered. So for somebody who is on Husky or somebody who has insurance via their great job, can you walk me through how insurance covers any of the work you're doing? 
So in Connecticut, we do have mandated cover for transgender services, whether that be psychiatry or behavioral health, um, endocrinology, primary care, surgery, all of those are mandated coverages. So um, Husky is completely covered. There are limitations on who they can see. Obviously, if the uh, provider's not enrolled in Husky, then they can't see that person. But so Husky covers it. All your major employer-based insurances have to cover trans services. The loopholes are um, ERISA plans or um, large companies or small companies that self-fund their insurance plans can opt out of that if they want to, and a lot of them do. Some of the bigger employers in the state will do that, which is difficult for us. Um, Medicare covers most services as well. So those are really the biggest plans that we see. There are some limitations on types of medications and whether it can be brand or not, and all the same issues that we see with every other patient that we see. I think the biggest issue we run into is having to explain to insurance companies over and over and over again what medically necessary means for a trans patient. Because if you have somebody, for instance, who's having vaginoplasty, now vaginoplasty requires that you have a laser hair removal to get rid of hair where the skin is going to be inverted to make a vaginal canal, can't have hair in that canal, but you have. I have time and time again had to explain this to insurance companies who won't pay for that service because they don't deem it medically necessary because most of the time people are having it removed from their face or their arms or their legs for a different reason. So having to re-educate insurance companies or the people making those decisions over and over again about why it would be medically necessary is one of the most time-consuming parts of my job. If you were to go back to yourself at eight years old, eight-year-old Katie, and tell yourself what you do, how would your eight-year-old self respond? Whoa. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't, I got into this mostly because it was presented to me. I was working in a practice where we had trans patients. It was the only endocrinologist in the state at the time doing trans care. And when he left practice, we had the patients and no one to take care of them. And so I had a choice, either take care of them and learn it or let them go. And I, I was not comfortable just letting them go. And I think the reason is because I have an enormous amount of compassion for people battling this, having lived with gay parents in Ohio growing up and being gay myself, I I have compassion for people who are really battling the system in general. You know, at some point I had to make a choice whether or not just to keep the patients I had or to open it up to new patients. And I was really encouraged or pushed, not sure which, by a colleague of mine, Dr. Davis Smith, who basically said, why would you not? You can do this. And where I thought I could not, he thought I could. Part of the the issue is that there's just not a ton of resources. There was no mentor for me to have. There was no, you know, everything I was going to learn, I was going to learn on my own. And so I made the leap and it has honestly been the greatest thing I have ever decided to do. It is really, when you do healthcare, you bring your, a piece of your soul into every room. There's nothing they can pay me for that. They can't, you know, there's nothing I can do except choose to do that. And I get paid back in spades by patients who are grateful, by patients who are improving. I get to see people become themselves, and that is a place in life that I would have never expected to be over and over and over again. And I'm so grateful that I get to see that because there's not a lot to pay providers back for the healthcare that we provide when we bring our heart into the room. And so being able to be re-energized by that and seeing patients do well, that, that to me is incredible. So I don't think as an, I think my eight year old self would be totally proud of what I do 
having grown up the way that I grew up. If you were at a restaurant and you happen to speak to somebody or meet somebody who was trans and they were struggling with what to do next, they had a lot of fear, fear of the expense, fear of the psychological aspect of these huge changes, fear of what these hormones might do or the surgery might feel or what their family and friends might say. What would you say to them to encourage them? if you thought encouragement was the way to go? I always think that encouragement is the way to go. You know, I think ultimately it's about finding them the right person to talk to in the right situation. If surgery is the issue, I need to have them, you know, find somebody who's been through the surgery or talk to a surgeon themselves or try to find the thing that is the most fear-provoking for them and figure out how to move them forward. And that might not necessarily mean accessing services for transgender care, that might mean they don't need services for trans care. You know, some people conflate sexual orientation and gender identity, and not just people who aren't dealing with these. People who are trans and people who are gay and lesbian also do that. And so helping them get to a person who can help them decide what those things mean in their lives is really important because it is not an easy topic. And having a way to, to be comfortable, to have those conversations, to really flush it out, and then be comfortable with the fact that it might change next week is really, really important. And so there's an incredible amount of fear for trans people and non-trans people or gender non-conforming people. And even just one person randomly saying that they're not afraid of you can be incredibly powerful. So finding a way to make that happen so that whatever it is that's scaring them, we can figure out a way to to push through it so we can get the right answer. And overall, especially here in Connecticut and definitely here at Middlesex Health, we are in an incredibly great place in terms of access to services and insurance coverage and just cultural acceptance. It's not going to be universal. And even, you know, even in our system, there are going to be people who aren't sure they can do or want to do this kind of thing. But I think that the more that we're visible, the more we talk about it, the more that we normalize what this is, the better care we're going to give to everyone. One of the parts of that interview that really stuck with me is when she says that we're all gender non-conforming. Even cis men in tuxedos and cis women in ball gowns are gender non-conforming according to other cultures. So the next time your misinformed friend or family member rolls their eyes about there being a spectrum of gender, you can remind them that they too are floating along on that spectrum right along with you, whether they know it or not. Cool. Thanks to Catherine Tierney, Medical Director of Middlesex Health's Transgender Medicine Program in Middletown, Connecticut. You can find more information on her great work at middlesexhealth.org. Next up, you might not think a bank would really care about the diversity of their employees, but Martin Geitz thinks otherwise. Since 2004, he's been the president and CEO of Simsbury Bank, where he's made it a priority to include and celebrate the great work of the LGBTQIA community. I started off by asking him how his business invests in their success. We are open for business for everyone. We are welcoming of everyone uh, because that is the world that we live in, and we want to be part of that world as specifically and broadly as we can. In 2019, we have still a lot of challenges to overcome, but we also have made a lot of progress, especially in this part of the world. How much of a role do you think institutions like banks have in moving the needle towards greater opportunities for a more diverse workforce? And how much do you think it's a response or a reaction to an evolving society? 
I think they play a very important role in moving things forward because when you have hundreds and thousands of companies that are embracing a point of view on inclusiveness, that creates a change that supports changes that are going on in society. So to the second part of your question, I think the corporate community is is following societal trends and along the way embracing by the corporate community of inclusiveness helps advance the discussions in the broader society and at some points the discussion in broader society influences what the you know the, the corporate community is going to do so i think it's kind of a symbiotic change but i think it's very important to create lasting change in the society if the workplace is not supporting the individual's total self, then it's a less happy world. That's a great point. So you've got, you want to appeal, of course, to your customers, but if your employees don't feel fulfilled, they won't stay for long. That's exactly right. And it's a talent challenge. And Simsbury Bank is, for the last six years, been uh, recognized as a, quote, top workplace. And I think one of the factors is that I'd like to hope, I'd like to think that the vast majority of our employees feel like this is a place where they can achieve their career potential and are treated with respect, and so it's a great place to work. That's important for attracting and retaining employees. It's also important for the way we interact with our customers. If we don't have happy employees, customers know that, right? I mean, a hundred percent. Right. I pay attention to how the employees seem, and I know that's not always fair because we all have bad days. I worked retail, I know, but being able to read the employee tells me a lot frankly, overall about the company they're working for. It's absolutely true. And so one of the important ingredients for us to be successful in the long run is exactly what we're talking about. We need to have employees who are motivated and uh, feel good about coming to work today, want to come to work every day, uh, because that then is shared with the customers and the customers uh, will experience that and and say, I want to do business with that bank. And hopefully they'll tell their friends, Mm -hmm. go to Simsbury Bank and you will be, uh, have a great experience. Right on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks to Martin Geitz of Simsbury Bank and to Catherine Tierney from Middlesex Health. And thanks to you for listening to the first Connecticut Voice podcast. If you like the show and you want us to grow, please share this episode on your social medias and leave us a review. That really helps. And if you know someone who you think would be awesome on this podcast, email me, podcast at ctvoice.com. That's podcast at ctvoice.com. I'm Kyone Wolf. See you next time on Connecticut Voice Podcast.